I'd like now to welcome Barbara King. She's Professor Emerita of Anthropology at the College of William and Mary. She writes a weekly science blog for NPR, 13.7 Cosmos and Culture, and she's author of the new book, Personalities on the Plate, The Lives and Minds of Animals We Eat. Welcome to the Science Radio Cafe. Hi, Mary Charlotte. Thank you for inviting me on. Great to have you. This is a book about animals as sentient beings with their own lives and emotions. And it's interesting to me that you started the book with insects and spiders, which we eat, apparently unknowingly, that was news to me. But tell us about food insects, who eats them, and why you chose to include them in this book about basically creatures with personalities. Cross-culturally, lots and lots of people, millions, eat insects, and on purpose, I'm talking about. So it's possible to wander through food markets all across Asia and Africa, and sometimes in Europe and North America, and find a wide variety of bugs on sale for cooking, for snacking, for eating. And as an anthropologist, I know that insect eating has been a part of human cuisine for a very long time. So in the interest of science, I did eat some cricket cookies and grasshopper tacos just to experience <laughs> what it might be like. Um, the cricket cookies were, were good. The grasshopper tacos were a little bit harder. I went to a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and boy, I really felt like I was eating insects in a way that you don't if you're simply consuming a product with cricket flour with the grasshopper tacos, you know, the little legs are falling around as you eat and crunch them. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to think about the hard questions about entomophagy, eating insects. For so long, people thought, oh, fish don't feel pain. Even other farmed animals' um, inner lives and ability to feel was really sort of ignored and pushed down. And we now know that fish feel pain. We now know that farmed animals think and feel. But the questions are still outstanding for insects. And as the world considers how to feed so many billions of people with enough protein, both using plants and animals, the question really is, what do we do about insects? Should we start upping our consumption of insects? And I don't want to forget the fact that insects, many of them do learn they have a certain type of intelligence. They're not all robotic little instinct-driven animals. And that's why I started the book off that way, to make people start thinking in a different perspective right from the get-go. The book progresses from animals least like us, insects, through octopuses and fish, chickens, and then various mammals, including goats, pigs, and cows, and then finally chimpanzees. And it seems that we human beings find it more difficult and morally complex to eat creatures the more they are like us. Is this true universally? Is it? If it is, why is it so? I don't know if it's true universally. I think that's a good question. I do think that in the societies in which I live and I'm most familiar with, it's true. So that in this country, we would not think, I think this is true for most of us, we would not think of eating an elephant, a uh, tiger, a uh, chimpanzee, charismatic big mammals that we can relate to in some way. 
that have senses that are somewhat like ours, that clearly have an intelligence like ours. And then it becomes more complicated. And both, yes, as we move away on an evolutionary scale, but also it's a little more complicated, I think, because think about pigs. And pigs are mammals. Pigs are, are as much like us, I would submit, as a tiger in terms of worldview and intelligence. But we eat pigs readily. I mean, pork, barbecue, bacon is a life stable for many people and a pleasure. So what's that about? In that case, it's not who we're closest to, but it's who we bound off in our minds as edible versus not edible. And that's a complex psychological process. I can't say that I understand it completely. I do think we're very good at rationalizing when it comes to wanting to preserve the things that we like to eat. Well, it's also animals that we've domesticated. I mean, we haven't really domesticated, certainly not lions and tigers and mostly not elephants. Right. But look at the octopus, for example. Here we have a wild creature who's not domesticated, who's not looking very much like us, who has an alien to us body structure and way of being in the world. And this creature is one that now people are wanting to farm. The idea of aquaculture, of course, is already taken hold in, in society around the world. Fish are farmed readily. Most of the fish we eat in this country certainly are farmed fish. And now, instead of really thinking critically about the harms that that's doing to animals and to our health, the proposal is to start farming octopus. And this is not a domesticated animal, but it's an animal that is, as you say, unlike us. So the factors are complex and interactive. And octopuses turn out to be much more intelligent creatures than many of us probably imagined. What is the nature of their intelligence? We know now that octopus are capable, many species, of using tools. And as you know, for a long time, this was considered a hallmark of humanity. And then Jane Goodall found out that chimpanzees make and use tools. And then cetacean scientists found out that some dolphins make and use tools. And the same for crows and any number of other species. But octopuses are, of course, invertebrates. And this was a surprise. So, for example, the veined octopus that lives in the waters off Indonesia will follow along with boats from which coconuts are sometimes dropped into the sea. And they'll use coconut shells as little mobile homes. They will open them and use them as shelters for themselves in ways that's just every bit as intelligent as any other tool user. Octopus also can solve problems in the laboratory and sometimes use those problem-solving skills to escape the laboratory and the aquarium. They clearly think about what they're doing. In the wild, they'll use uh, rocks to kind of build up a shelter in ways that they find pleasing. They also use the chromatophores, their color-changing cells that allow them to adapt to their environment, to flash their moods. So it's not only that they're smart, but we can see, even if we can't fully decode it, we can see that they have moods and they have feelings about what's going on as they go through their everyday lives. Fish are also incredibly interesting. And there, there was a little video, I actually looked it up while I was reading the book, of there's a documented case of fish using tools. 
Yes, that's right. Fish, um, for example, the tusk fish and others can use tools in foraging. We also know that some fish cooperatively hunt. One thing that fascinated me during my fish chapter research is finding out that fish can gesture to each other in quite complicated ways. So the chili use is very cool because it puts them into the club, right, of all these animals that I've mentioned about um, solving foraging problems using tools. But we know that it goes even beyond that. So primatologists look for something called referential communication, the ability to gesture about something very specific in the environment, not just something global, but something specific. And it is. it turns out that certain fish do this when they hunt with their partners. And so if a prey escapes and gets into a rock crevice or something, one fish will position itself over the rock crevice and shake its head in a manner that summons its partners so that together then the team in some way can go after this prey. And that's very cool. Yeah, interspecies communication and affection plays a role both between creatures and human beings and among different creatures themselves. There was a famous video about a goat that had been living with a with a donkey and they got separated and the goat went into a great depression and they were eventually reunited and they were all happy again. And you start the chapter on chickens with a story of a therapy chicken and there's a story about a seeing eye chicken for its blind chicken companion. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are these are social animals with lives and what certainly appears to be love and affection. Yes, absolutely. I no longer shy away from using the words love and grief and joy and sorrow when applied to other animals. And as you say, this includes animals as distinct as goats, chickens, and so on. So the therapy chicken, Mr. Henry Joy, he was raised from an egg by a man living in North Carolina. And at one point in his life, he ended up with a woman who took him quite by accident, really, uh, into a nursing home. In other words, she just happened to be visiting somebody. She grabbed the chicken as she was making her rounds, took him in a basket into this nursing home. And people in the nursing home just lit up at the presence of this animal wanting to hold him. He had a personality that was very outgoing and he kind of got into it. And this became a really dynamic interspecies, a series of encounters. So what I tell people is that we know from our own interactions with our dogs and cats and bunnies and so forth, that interspecies bonds are very strong, but sometimes we don't think about the fact that these can extend out in surprising ways. That I do know people who bond with animals as distinct as tarantulas and chickens. And then we see that those bonds can continue on between animals of other species without our interference at all. I mean, of course, we may help them in their captive environment. But in other words, it's not set up by us. It happens and flows naturally from the animals themselves. So they really feel their lives every bit of every day. Now, there's a number of larger questions with eating animals. And one of them is health. And there's a lot of different ways to consider health. One is what's healthy for your body. Another is what's healthy for the whole ecosystem. Another is what's healthy for the animals themselves. And so, for example, chicken soup might be healthy for me. The chicken factory might be incredibly unhealthy for the environment. And the chickens might suffer terribly or they might be more humanely raised. I mean, how do we think about this? How do you think about it when 
making choices and recommending choices for others? Well, you hit the three factors just quite correctly. Our health, the planet's health, and the suffering of other animals. One thing I want to say in answering your question is that I don't make recommendations for what other people should eat. My goal is to bring together science and storytelling about animal lives to give people more information from science about the choices that they're making. I mean, there's millions of us literally in this country and around the world who are rethinking what we eat for the three reasons that you mentioned. And so what I think I can do is look at the fresh, new, exciting science of animal cognition and animal emotion and bring that to the table. Now, having said that, all of this work that I've done over the last five or six years in my last two books have made me think very differently about what I eat. So no chicken soup for me. In other words, you know, if I get sick, I, I eat plant proteins and oranges and, and nuts and, and, and this sort of thing. I am not quite vegetarian because I do eat an occasional fish. Other than that, I rely on plants and nuts and all kinds of good, healthy plant protein. And I do that because for me, the animal suffering really has outweighed most other factors in my mind. That's my particular path into thinking this through because I work on and for animals. It is the factor that has overcome everything else. And I know that people know what goes on in factory farms the horror and the misery so that in fact as jonathan saffron foer puts it in his book we eat misery and i don't want to do that anymore so my choice has evolved over the years away from eating animals to simply not with the exception as i mentioned of an occasional fish one thing that you write about is how the males of various domesticated farm species are treated so male chickens don't lay eggs, male goats and cows don't give milk. What happens to them? Yeah, well, they're just slaughtered. They're excess. They're superfluous. They don't matter. And this isn't to say that the females are treated well in these farming situations. But in some cases, they live for a while, at least. And depending on the farm, they may have relatively decent lives. If it's a factory farm, they don't. But, for example, male chicks, I mean, one thing that happens to many male chicks is they undergo what's called maceration, which is simply that these little cute fluffy chicks that we all think about on certain holidays and in greeting cards and children's books get sliced apart by knives. And it was actually on the day that I read about maceration um, in December 2011 that I never ate chicken again. And I had stopped eating pigs and cows and goats and other animals before that. So... For me, I think it becomes a question of ethics and of thinking about the cost of a meal that might bring me pleasure. I will still and always say that I miss chicken pot pie. I do. I tried various types of faux chicken and it's getting better all the time and I will continue to experiment. But for me, missing a chicken pot pie is really nothing compared to animal suffering. And so it's just fairly easy for me not to eat it. There's something interesting that's going on with goats, which really have not been factory farmed, but they've become more popular both as pets and as meat. What's going on? Yeah, I talked about the uh, goat meme because suddenly there are 
goat video games and goats popping up in all kinds of YouTube videos, including MTV videos with various rock stars. And the pet thing is just taking off with miniature goats being very popular in the way that um, small pot-bellied pigs used to be. Why this is happening, who knows? But at the same time, and it's such a bizarre sort of twinned factor with all of this love for goats, is that goat stew and goat meat is taking off in this country. So that there's all kinds of restaurants in big cities, LA, New York, Washington, that are more and more offering goat meat and people are turning onto it. So why? This is the question that always comes back to haunt me. What is the complexity of the human brain that allows you to embrace animals and eat animals at the same time? And I think there's a lot of evolutionary myths about that, like, oh, you know, we humans are supposed to eat meat, or, oh, other animals eat meat, so it's okay for us. And my answer to that is always that, yes, our evolutionary trajectory did depend in some way on eating meat millions of years ago, but now that we have these complicated brains, we can step back and think about what we're doing and think about the fact that if goats are cute enough to bring into our homes and to love and to like, why are we eating them? I mean, I was thinking as I was reading the book about our hunter-gatherer history. And I mean, it's not only millions of years ago, but tens of thousands of years ago, that is the way human beings lived for a very long time. And I was wondering, I mean, if you see a way in the age of agriculture to think humanely about where we are on the food chain that takes into account this hunting past and meat-eating past that we have. Well, we can take into account our hunting and gathering past as an informational part of the way that we think. We want to think scientifically. And in fact, there have been some animal activists who have said to me, oh, you know, it's just a myth that meat was important in our past. Well, no, it wasn't a myth. It was important in our past. And of course, you're right. 12,000, 15,000 years ago, everybody on the planet was a hunter and gatherer. But at the same time, we know that we can use our brains to think differently and to bring empathy and compassion to the forefront. So how do we do that? Well, quite recently, I attended what was called a Reducitarian Summit in New York City. This is an attempt to bring together vegans, vegetarians, and people who are interested in cutting back on meat and animal products. So in other words, in order to be a vegetarian, you don't have to eat no meat. You don't have to eat no animal products. But you do need to be interested in thinking in this way that I've described about the impact of meat eating on our bodies, on the planet, and on animals. And I think it's perfectly possible to do this in ways that recognize, first of all, not everybody in the world is going to become vegan or vegetarian. Not everyone can do this for any number of reasons, ranging from economy to health. But that if a large number of us really think about the important factors that we're discussing here and make an effort to cut down, seriously cut down on meat eating, then it's good for all of us. In other words, it's a win-win all around. I don't see any cost to that. Some people will want to go the whole way and become vegan and others won't. But I think there's a collective enterprise underway that in no way denies anything about our biology or our evolution or the reality of being alive in the world today that puts these factors front and center. I can't help but think of 
another piece of the big picture, which is the hazards of crop agriculture. Here in the Southwest and in the Great Plains, I mean, prairie, which housed countless species, was turned over into monocrops that were really bad for the land, resulted in the Dust Bowl, are still sucking huge amounts of water, and those species are gone. And, you know, all the species who, who lived there, basically. And I was thinking that, I mean, given that, and you describe some of these smaller family farms that offer a relatively humane environment for animals and give them good lives before they become food, the same applies to crop agriculture in a lot of ways, which, which is doing tremendous damage. I mean, degrading the soil to the point where we could have a humanitarian crisis before anybody knows it. You're absolutely right. Crop agriculture is something we all need to think about and understand. And in fact, the conclusion of what you're saying for me is simply that to live and be human and to eat is to cause damage. We know this. The idea that I'm working on, along with many, many others, is to think very mindfully about how to minimize that damage. And part of that is to focus on the really big and bad actors. And for me, that really is singling out and putting our target sites on the factory farms. This is not to say that we shouldn't work in other ways as well. You're right that there are some smaller farms that give animals relatively humane lives. And it is that word that I think is important to keep in mind. So while I want to keep factory farming as the center target, I also think it's important philosophically, ethically, and also practically to raise the question, is there such a thing as humane slaughter? I mean, if we know if pigs are routinely killed at six months of age, for example, and they can live to be 14, 15, and 16, is it humane to deprive them of those years of living, of feeling, and of thinking? So the questions are, they multiply. The more you think, the harder the questions get. And one thing I've concluded is that if someone comes up to me and tells me they have all the answers, I'm immediately suspicious. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, it's philosophically complicated on so many levels because animals like us are as cruel as they are kind. I mean, in, in any, I mean, these octopuses are very intelligent. They're also cannibals. They eat each other. Chimps do horrible things to one another, and they also have kind of beautiful communal experiences and that you describe in the book chickens, pretty much any animal you name. And the idea that everybody should be only humane seems to be something that we apply to human beings, right? But we're not just humane either. We are animals like everybody else. Well, I might contest your use of the word cruelty, if I might. I don't really accept that animals in nature are cruel, because for me, cruelty implies intention, awareness, in a way that I'm not convinced other animals have, potentially chimpanzees. Yes, we know, and you alluded to this, that chimpanzee males will hunt down and very brutally kill other chimpanzee males and sometimes females. And chimpanzees are so incredibly smart that it is possible that they have a very conscious awareness of what they're doing. But I don't think that, for example, predators, when they eat prey, are being cruel, or that chickens, when they are aggressive to other chickens, are being cruel. 
if they are, it's a different type of cruelty than human cruelty, where we have an array of choices to make. And really, the audience that I'm talking to mostly are people who do have the luxury of making choices about their food. And that certainly isn't every last person. But why wouldn't we choose to be humane and to be kind and to be merciful? Why wouldn't we choose to eat foods that are healthier for us and for other animals if we can and to make an effort in that direction? In the book, you describe a number of animal rescue sanctuaries, and these are places for mistreated animals, and there are some harrowing stories. And as I was reading them, I couldn't help but think that we human beings could learn from them about how to treat people with post-traumatic stress. Yes, it's amazing what animals will forgive, and I think that's what you're referring to. My husband and I have seen that with the abandoned and in some cases traumatized cats, house cats, that we deal with, animals who've been through quite a lot, in some cases abuse that we know and understand, and in some cases we take in animals whose histories we don't know, but we can tell that something very bad happened. And through lots of love and kindness and patience, it is possible to see that these animals you know, forgive humans and make bonds with new humans and want to go forward in very loving ways. We see this in chimpanzees who are rescued from biomedical laboratories and make bonds with humans who want to help them. We see this with elephants, with pigs, with goats, and with chickens. And the resilience of these animals that have been rescued from, in some cases, factory farms or other very difficult situations is very seriously inspiring to me. It certainly depends on the personality of the animal. And one of the things that I try to do in this book, as you can tell from the title, is to talk about the fact that you know, no two goats are the same in the way that no two humans are. And the resilience that a goat or a chicken or a pig can bring to a situation will vary. And so I worry about going too far with the resilience argument in my own work because there is a limit and certain animals don't have that wherewithal to withstand the trauma and the stresses that we introduce them to and others will. What is your hope for this book? My hope for this book is to reach people who are thinking about what they eat already and want to think harder. I don't have any illusions that it's going to massively change people's eating habits. I don't think it's that easy. We have had vegan and vegetarian activists working on these issues for many years, and I am learning myself from them. But I do think that there is a benefit to, as I mentioned earlier, the marriage of science and storytelling. People truly love animals. And when they begin to think about Mr. Henry Joy the chicken and Esther the wonder pig, and all of the octopus as individuals who lived interesting lives that they want to hear about, I do strongly believe that this can be a platform for introducing new questions to people as they make choices three times a day about what to eat. And in some cases, I think maybe they will make different choices. I hope so. Barbara King is author of the book, Personalities on the Plate, The Lives and Minds of Animals We Eat. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Mary Charlotte.